Reading from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Let's pause there and pray and ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Father, we thank you so much for this time in your word. And we just ask you, Lord, to give our eyes and our hearts and our thoughts a glimpse, just a glimpse of how great you are and how great you are in providing us with Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The heavens declare the glory of God. One of the ways the heavens declares the glory of God is by its size, its mind-boggling size and scope. As we just saw in that video, and I, just, I thought that was kind of a, a, a nice little introduction to the size that we're dealing with when we talk about the universe. The Milky Way, which is our little galaxy, is 100,000 light years from one end to the other, or 588 quadrillion miles. The galaxy closest to us, the Andromeda, is 2.4 million light years away. And the furthest galaxy that we can see through the Hubble Space Telescope is 13.4 billion light years away. Now, we throw out those numbers, but our minds cannot comprehend what we're talking about with the size and with the scope of the universe. And so when we consider the, the mind-boggling size, the billions of galaxies, the quadrillion stars and planets and, in the universe, I totally get why some people say it's arrogant for us to think that we're the only life in the universe, that, that Earth is the only planet that has life. It's, it's arrogant. It's, it's, it seems ridiculous to think that we are here alone. And surely if there's life on this planet, there must be life on other planets too, in other galaxies. And someone, if they believe in God, might say, if God created all this, doesn't it seem rather wasteful for him to create so much for so little, for one little planet in one, with one little star, one little solar system? Wouldn't it be wasteful of him to create such a vast universe just for us? Now, listen, I don't know, you know, if God created life on other planets. The Bible is silent on that. But let me say this. It would be totally wasteful. It would be totally wasteful and arrogant if the grandeur and the size and the scope of the universe was meant to say something about us. But it's not. It's about God. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. When we look up into the night sky and we see, you know, stars and we see the moon and we see the planets, or if we look through the Hubble telescope and we see millions and billions of galaxies, all of that declares something about God. It's not saying something about us. It's declaring something about God. The heavens are one way that God speaks to us. One of the things the Bible tells us is that God is a communicating God. He is a God who loves to speak. He loves to communicate. It's one of the ways that we're created in the image of God, is that he communicates, and we do as well. We love to speak and communicate as well. In fact, communication is one of the deep and most important building blocks to relationship. Sharing your heart, sharing your thoughts, sharing moments together, laughing together, talking, sometimes even disagreeing, interacting, is the way that relationships go strong. And what this tells us is that God is a relational God. He wants relationship. He's a communicating God. And one of the ways he does is through the heavens and through his creation. So I want us to consider briefly, what is God saying? What is God saying? And the first thing I want us to look at is that God speaks, God speaks a general revelation about himself through creation. Verses 1 through 6 details that. Listen again to the first four verses of Psalm 19, and I want you to listen to the communication that's going on here. Beginning of verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. God loves to reveal himself and to reveal something about himself in the heavens, in all of creation. We look at his creation and we see God, something about God. In fact, Paul writes that in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So in all of this creation, God, who God is, is clearly seen. And I want to look at just a few aspects of that. Let me, let me just say this really quickly. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds. But when we consider who God is and what the Bible says, God is not his creation. Okay? If you hear somebody teach that God is his creation, you need to run. But also, God is not in all his creation. That's, uh, God is his creation is pantheism. God is in all his creation is panotheism. And the Bible makes it very clear. God is not in his creation. We don't see God uh, like God isn't in that flower. God isn't in that tree. God is separate from his creation. He is holy. He is separate. He is other than his creation. But 
We see his fingerprints all throughout creation. We see something about who God is in his creation. And I want us to consider just a few things. These are general revelations. These are not specific. We'll get to that. First of all, creation speaks of God's glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. <clears throat> and glory is a Hebrew word that means weight or honor. But those words don't really capture the full meaning. <clears throat> when we look at the universe, it declares the weight, the honor, the glory of God. One of the glorious things it declares right away, we see just even in that video, which only took us out to the edges of our Milky Way, which is such a small part of the universe. We see that God is infinite in all his attributes. How do we see that? We see that because God could have created a universe that simply ended at the edges of our solar system. We haven't even gotten there. Maybe there's some, I don't know, did we send up some space shot that's like at the end of Pluto or something like that? There's something that's out there, but it's taken all this time just to get that far out. If, if I'd feel like I had enough room to live if, if all we had was this solar system and our planet and all that, like, but God, we'd still see God is great. God is massive. Or God could have just put the edges. He could have, he could have put the borders around the Milky Way. Just that, and how massive is that? We'll never get anywhere near the end of that. And we'd see that God is great and God is glorious. But God created this universe that the edges of which seem to us the closest thing to infinity that can be known or considered. And it shows us the, the nearly infinite size, at least from our perspective of the universe, declares that the creator is an infinite God. The cause is always greater than the effect. It is God, his power, that created the power of a quadrillion stars. It didn't even break a sweat. It is his wisdom that set a medium-sized star in the middle of a solar system, and then with wisdom and craftsmanship measured exact distances to hang a planet so that that planet would be the perfect environment for life. You can't get it wrong by a few million miles either direction. The fine-tuning of our universe is glory to behold, and we see God's wisdom in that. In all that God is, the Bible says he is infinite. All his attributes, nothing is, there are no edges to who God is. He is infinite in his glory, infinite in his justice, infinite in his wisdom, infinite in his power. That's omnipotent, all-powerful. There's no edges to God's power. He's omniscient. He knows everything. God is omnipresent. He is all, he is everywhere at once. He is all-present everywhere at once the heavens declare the glory of God by declaring the infiniteness of God number one but number two creation speaks of God's loving care and his compassion we see that all around us in fact the other day I was sitting on our back porch and I love to watch the birds and and the rabbits and all the creatures in our back area and I saw a, uh, a mom robin with 
not a baby robin, I'd, I'd call it a teenage robin because it had the speckled breast. It hadn't yet gotten the red breast, but it was almost as big as mom. And so I'm watching, and so they're both on kind of like in, you know, maybe 10 feet apart, and teenage robin finds some kind of bug. I see it go down and come up with a, like a, it looked like a worm in its beak. But wouldn't you know, that, that bug just kind of popped out of its beak and fell to the ground and disappeared in the grass. And I thought for sure that teenage robin was going to go for a second try. He turns around, he starts running to mom. And, and he's chirping. And you could tell he's like, because I've had teenagers, feed me. Feed me. I need food. That's a scene that's reproduced all around the world in a million different ways. God has built into most creatures, not some, but most creatures, this amazing love and compassion for their young ones. A compelling drive to care for their young we as parents, as human parents, we have that built-in desire where we would lay down our lives for our children. We would do anything to care for them and protect them. That reflects the heart of God. As creator, God cares for his creation. He doesn't just care for man, although he does care for us amazingly, but he cares for that little bird. He feeds the sparrow. Psalm 36, 5 says, your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Like we are surrounded by the love of God and the faithfulness of God. And so by God's command, the sun comes up every morning and circles around and goes down. And that faithfulness is as it provides all we need to live is reflecting the faithfulness of God. So creation reflects the, God's loving care and compassion. But here is also true. Creation also speaks of the terror of God. That's not something we think about that much. But it speaks of the terror of God. Because nature at times, creation can be terrifying. I would not want to be out in space right now. Um, tornadoes. I grew up in the Midwest, and I, every time a cloud passed over the sun, I got sick to my stomach with fear. I had a tremendous fear of tornadoes as a kid because of their destructive power. Hurricanes, earthquakes, being in the middle of the ocean in a bad storm, terrifying. The brutal cold of Antarctica, the, the blazing heat and brutal cold of a desert. It's, it can be terrifying. Nature can be terrifying. Predators can be terrifying. In a poem Lord Tennyson wrote, I get this, Lord Tennyson wrote this after losing a beloved friend. This is a poem about grief. And he wrote this line, Nature is red in tooth and claw. It's bloody. Nature is bloody. That line became a favorite line among evolutionists such as Huxley and Darwin because their view of nature was just that. Just red in tooth and claw. Dispassionate, cold, cruel. But not cruel, because it's just what nature is. Survival of the fittest. There is no compassion. There need be no mercy. That goes against nature. It is survival of the fittest. It was that demonic 
belief system that gave rise to Hitler and Nazi Germany with their Aryan, their idea of a superior Aryan race and the necessary extermination of the weak and the inferior. It all was birthed out of the evolutionist view of survival of the fittest. They did miss an important truth that Tennyson closed his poem with, and we'll get to that in a moment. And I believe they've got it almost all wrong, but they do get one thing right. Creation can be terrifying. And that also tells us something about God. Because while God is good and loving, he, God is not someone to be messed with. He is not someone to be trifled with. Some picture God as being the nicest being in the, in the universe who wouldn't hurt a fly. Just the grandfather rocking, laughing, chuckling. Some picture a God or actually forge a God who looks a lot like them. Everything I believe, God believes. Every opinion I have, God has that opinion. I almost fell. Uh, uh, and it's amazing how God seems to see things the way I see it well that's because we're forging a God of our own making there is such a and the Bible says in the last days there will be people who have no fear of God there is such a sense that hey I'm gonna judge God he's not gonna judge me but that's not what the Bible says the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, verse 31. Revelation describes a time when God in, in the person of Jesus Christ returns to the earth and people will cry out for the things they normally are afraid of, for the rocks and the hills to fall upon them and crush them just to hide them from the terror of the brilliance of the holiness of Jesus Christ. In that day. In other words, picture the most terrifying thing nature could throw at you, and it's dwarfed in the face of the terror of God. He is no one to be messed with. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And creation speaks that to us. But creation finally also speaks of God's beauty. There is such beauty around us. Beauty in a sunset, in a beautiful summer day, or a snow-capped visa, um, in a panoramic landscape, in the sound of songbirds. There's so much beauty in the night sky, and the beauty of nature can speak peace to a troubled heart and to a despairing soul. God infused beauty in his creation because God is beautiful. His holiness is beautiful. God is the master artist. He is the one who loves creativity, who loves, he doesn't just create what we barely need, but he infuses beauty. You ever hear a song that just, just permeates your soul with its beauty or just makes your heart want to sing? You know what? God is the master composer. If you've ever seen an artist paint a beautiful painting or any piece of work, it all reflects the artistry of God, a God who loves beauty and gave us so much beauty to enjoy around us. But let me say this. There's beauty in his creation only if we believe in the creator. 
in the beautiful creator. You remove God from the universe, it truly becomes cold and impersonal. If the universe is random and without meaning, then definitively so are our lives. Definitively. Because if there's no greater meaning in the universe, there is nothing you can attach your life to that has meaning. Everything we know, everything we accomplish, and everything we love is headed for the grave and oblivion, and it's like it never, ever existed. Everything. The saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, that's not a happy saying. That's a depressed saying of a soul that has no hope, saying you might as well party today because there ain't nothing to live for. It's a depressed saying. Eat, drink, and be merry. And that's, that's when people just live to live. They're just trying to forget their problems. They're just trying to get enough pleasure and food and this and that and recreation and all that to make life work. It's like, because tomorrow you're going to die. But deep inside, we know that's not the truth. We know that's not the end. The heavens don't declare the meaningless of life they declare the glory of God he is beautiful he is loving he is compassionate he is personal he is kind he is all those things so Lord Tennyson in his poem on grief mentioned nature being red of tooth and claw but remember he's grieving the loss of a dear loved friend and he writes and closes this poem by declaring that there is hope beyond the veil there is hope beyond the grave. That's where Tennyson landed. Darwin didn't get there. Our lives have eternal meaning. And I wanna, that brings us to the next thing that God speaks. And that is that God speaks a specific revelation about himself through the Bible. I want to read verses 7 through 14. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold so when David writes of the law in this psalm, he's writing of the word of God, all that they had at that point. We now have the completed canon that contains all of the revelation that God in his wisdom has decided to give us, the authoritative revolution, a revelation of God. All that we need to know about God right now is in this word. And all that we need to know about salvation and how to live our lives are in this word. That doesn't mean it's exhaustive. It just means all that God in his wisdom knew we needed to know, he put in his word. God has spoken through his word with such beauty and clarity that David says it lights up the eyes. It lights up the heart. It brings understanding. Oh, I see it now. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's quote, which I love. He says this. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, 
I see everything else. The word of God enlightens our eyes and we begin to see things fall into place. Oh, this is what is good in life. This is what life is meant to be. This is our problem, folks. This is what truth is. God has communicated in his word to us as a, as a letter to us. And this word, this Bible, is more precious to us than anything in the world. More than silver and gold. You want silver and gold? You better get this. Because you'll be poor at the end of having silver and gold, but you get this and you're rich. We're going to talk more about the word of God as we go into Psalm 119 next week. But the word of God endures forever. And the most precious, specific revelation this Bible gives to us from Genesis to Revelation is about the Savior he would send, Jesus Christ. The Jews looked forward to their Messiah, the anointed one. And Jesus said, all the scriptures speak of him. God was speaking of the son he would send to save our souls from beginning to end. That's what this book is about. It's not a bunch of teachings. It's a story, a love story from God, communicating his intense love for us. And his commitment to save us through Jesus Christ. So my last point this morning is this. God speaks a saving revelation about himself through Jesus, the word of God. In the opening words of the gospel of John, John refers to Jesus as the word. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. All things, he says, all creation, all those galaxies and stars and planets were created through him. And nothing was created apart from him. He's talking about Jesus, the word, the communication of God, the ultimate communication of God. And as the word, Jesus, lived among us, we saw in Jesus, the heart of the Father. We saw what God is like. In Jesus' compassion for the sick, we saw the compassion the Father feels for the suffering. In his love for the lost, we see the Father's love for the lost. When Jesus reached out to the lonely, to the outcast, we see the Father reaching out to the lonely and the outcast as well. The word Jesus communicated perfectly God the Father and the heart of the Father to this world. And the, the greatest declaration of the heart of God is found at the cross. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Greatest demonstration of God's love for us was on the cross. Hebrews 12, 23 reminds us that even the blood of Jesus speaks to us. The writer of Hebrews writes, You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
Remember Abel was killed by his, son, his brother Cain. And his blood cried out, vengeance, revenge me. Jesus' blood cries out a better word than vengeance. It cries out mercy. Forgive them. Mercy. I just want to remind us this morning that Jesus said he didn't come to condemn the world. He didn't come to, to shower condemnation on the world. He came to save the world. Jesus says those who believe in him are not condemned. Like on judgment day, those who believe in Jesus, and we sang so many beautiful songs today about that, we're not condemned. But then Jesus says something that I have sometimes pondered and wondered about. He said, those who do not believe in me are condemned already. And here's what it sounds like. It sounds like if somebody doesn't believe in Jesus, they're simply condemned for not believing. But I think Jesus is saying something far more complicated and something far deeper than that, that they're simply condemned for not believing. <clears throat> If a person refuses to believe in Jesus, the only way to escape condemnation, then I believe the Bible reveals to us they are condemned by a million things because they did not accept the only way to escape condemnation. They're not condemned for one thing. You didn't believe you're condemned. They're condemned by a million things because they didn't accept the one way to escape condemnation. And I want to close with an illustration that <clears throat> comes from a recent news. As you know, I know several weeks ago, the world was transfixed as five people, including a father and son, went down in a submersible with the idea of, of sinking 12,500 feet down to the Titanic and then exploring this ship that fascinates so many people, including myself. <clears throat> on their way down, they lost contact. We know the story. As the search went on for days. <clears throat> but the reality was that their submersible was breached on the way down. And it's really actually a mercy that they didn't spend days suffering down there. They were dead before they knew they were dead. And that's kind of a mercy, actually. But the pressure at the depth of the Titanic is roughly 6,000 pounds per square inch. 6,000 pounds per square inch. Once a vessel is breached, it will implode with violent and sudden force. The only safe place at that depth is to be in a vessel that can withstand the pressures and the dangers of that depth. If you get out of the vessel, you're dead. You're condemned already. You, you have, now why? Why? See, if I said, if you get out of that vessel, you're condemned already. You're dead already. You're going to say, well, that doesn't seem fair. There's a million ways you're going to die. Pick the way. 
the pressure will just, you're gone. But take away the pressure. You're not going to swim 12,500 feet up to get air. And the cold will freeze you in moments. And who knows, throw a shark or two in and you might get eaten. I mean, you're just dead. You're just condemned immediately. If you're not in the safe vessel, you're dead, period. A million ways, you're dead. Thousand reasons you will die once you leave a safe vessel at that depth. Our sin, the Bible says, is so deep, so fatal. God's righteous justice, so pure, so blazing, so weighty glory that we stand no more chance on judgment day than those five did of swimming to the surface on their own. No chance. No chance. The weight of God's glory. It's not going to be God's meanness that we're going to be frightened of on judgment day. It's going to be his goodness. It's going to be his purity. It's going to be the brilliance of his righteousness and justice Ain't nobody going to be doing like some attorney thing where they're trying to, you know, win a, a, a not guilty plea from God. Our sin will undo us in a million ways on judgment day. The weight of God's glory is far greater upon our souls on that day than 6,000 pounds per square inch. And the only safe place to be on judgment day for us as sinners, is in Christ. The only safe vessel is Christ. Because he is perfectly holy and righteous and just, and Christ's holiness, his righteousness, as he lived this earth, he withstood all the temptations, and he radiated the grace and love and wisdom and justice of God with the same outward force that God's force is going to meet. So he is the safe place. And when Jesus stands before the Father, God says, I love my son. And when we believe in Jesus, we are placed into Christ. And and God the Father says, and I love my children. And you are safe in him. But step out of him, bang, million reasons why. False religions are going to implode under the pressure of God's holiness. Sincere, misguided ideas about who God is will implode. Doing good and hope my good outweighs my bad. It's like dropping to 12,500 feet in a tin can. Just going to crumple up and implode. Our sins are many. They're varied. And in that sense, there are many reasons we are condemned before God. But there's only one safe place, Jesus. And so in that sense, if we're not in that safe place, the only safe place in all the universe, we are condemned already. But... God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Isn't that good news? I know that's a familiar passage, but wow. God so loved the world. Whoever believes in Jesus, the son God sent, will not perish 
but have everlasting life. God speaks a love letter to us in creation. He speaks it to us in the word of the Bible. And most of all, he speaks that love letter to us in Jesus Christ, communicating his love and his mercy and his free gift of life to all who will believe. If we will hear and receive, that's the important question. Let's pray together. While we're praying, I'm going to ask the band to quietly make their way up. If you have never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm not saying you go to church or you don't go to church or read the Bible, you don't read the Bible. I'm very religious. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you've never done that, I encourage you to get into the safe place, to believe in him. He didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you. He came to rescue you. He came because he loves you. So if that's you and you've never received Jesus, will you pray with me? Dear Jesus, I believe in you. And I ask you to please come into my heart and please place me in your heart. Save me from my sins. Save me from the judgment of God. Save me for relationship, eternal life and relationship with God. I'm not going to try to earn it. I'm not going to try to pay you back. I receive it as a gift. Thank you for loving me, forgiving me, and saving me, Jesus. Be my Lord and Savior the rest of my life. Amen. And Father, we just thank you for how you communicate with us, Lord. And as we come into Jesus and we know Jesus, we learn to hear your voice better and better. We can learn a deeper and deeper relationship with you. We can see your beauty as we spend time in your word. We can see your beauty as we look at creation. And Lord, we can see your beauty in Christ, our Savior. So beautiful. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to hear the love letter you are constantly sending to us and to respond. In Jesus' name, amen.